0: We're going to dig into our message here in just a moment, but I want to uh, begin this morning sharing a passage of Scripture with you and sharing a brief uh, comment on that, and then we'll begin with prayer right after that. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and uh, I want you to just climb into the context of this passage I'm about to read. This is God speaking through Moses to the nation of Israel, and He's telling them what to do and how to live and how to engage the things that He shared with them and the things that He will share with them. And um, I want you to climb in there by recognizing yourself as a new Israel with a promised land in store and a command to live and love appropriately and to engage the things that He told them um, we need to visit passages like this periodically. Let me share this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments with the Lord, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. To keep. Up. That's, that's where I'm going this morning just in this brief comment is to address our children's ministry i me read that, that phrase again. So that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. That's our goal with these kids. Let me go on. To keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I've commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Listen to this next verse. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I share that passage this morning because there are new families, Crosspoint, some that are taking a look at Crosspoint as possibly being a church home. And I want to be right up front and share with you what our children's ministry is about. It's about equipping you to be the teacher. We've been conditioned to this mindset I think it's public school, which I I appreciate. Our kids are in public school, but this mindset in public school that you send your kids off for the day, and they come back knowledgeable. And if they don't, then we're in that teacher's face. You're not doing your job. When all the while, we are the primary teachers in spiritual things. So our primary goal at Crosspoint is to equip you and to train you to be the primary teacher and equipper at home. So really, the most important ingredient of our children's ministry is when we gather corporately right here. And when we meet on Wednesday nights and when we unpack this word so you can be so arrested with the truths of Christ that you go home and you do what it says here. You talk of them when you sit in your house. You might turn the TV off some, more, some. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's what we're supposed to be about. Now, given that, as our primary purpose in children's ministry, I want to share with you what our secondary purpose is. Our secondary goal on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights is to engage children with quality truths about Christ. To be prepared, to engage them with teachers that are passionate to engage them not with a message or a lesson that's prepared the moments before, but something that they're spending the week on, something that matters, and engaging children in the things that matter for eternity—that's a secondary goal. Now, given that there are needs in our children's ministry where teachers need a break, you know, they're spending themselves on children, themselves on children, and they need to take a, a, a season off. And I want to encourage you to consider one of these positions right here. Two to three-year-old teacher. Let me just tell you right up front, if you think you're inadequate and ill-prepared and insufficient, you are. <laughs> I mean that kind of joking with two and three-year-olds, but at the same time, I mean it, it truth that I'm insufficient and inadequate to preach. But it doesn't mean that we don't speak. It doesn't mean we don't engage, because when the inadequate and insufficient Engage, then who gets the glory in that? God does. Because boneheads are doing it. And God looks big and huge. So two and three-year-old teacher, four and five-year-old teacher, four Wednesday night workers, and uh, that's ranging in, in ages from four-year-old to third grade. And then just general nursery needs. Uh, with the families that God has led to Point. He is leading a little row of kids behind him, and it's awesome. I mean, it really is. It's awesome, and we want to do a good job of engaging them and uh, overseeing them and supervising them and teaching them. If you're a visitor and you're a terminal visitor, the reason you're not being asked to engage children is because you need to be a member to engage them in a leadership sort of capacity. Because you need to be accountable to the bride. You need to be accountable to the leadership of the church to make sure you're not teaching them some sort of weird stuff. So that, that's why it's, it's not like we like members better. It's because members have submitted to being accountable to leadership. So if, if you're a terminal visitor, you need to do something about that. You're not supposed to be terminal visitors. You're supposed to stand in agreement with a body of believers and say, I, I stand with you in practice and belief, and I want to serve with you, and I will submit to being accountable to that bride. Now, if you're just kind of in the first month or two of visiting a church or something like that, we may ask you just because we need you, but you won't be the primary teacher or leader because you're not accountable to the bride yet. But we'll have somebody in there with you that's a member or a leader. So um, I, put, I share all that because I want to ask you. You know, a typical church has to beg people to be involved with children, which blows my mind. You're talking about a bunch of lost people? Talking about a bunch of people that don't know anything about God and Christ. And we have the chance to spend ourselves on them weekly. Crosspoint's different. Because I believe that we will be different. Because that Shema, which is what the nation of Israel learned. That Deuteronomy 6 passage meant something to them. They're going to do what he says. And I challenge you, um, encourage you to pray about it. To visit with Samantha. And um, to share with her uh, your thoughts that you've engaged the Lord on. Um, also, this morning, I want to I want to pray about that, those those needs. I want to pray about our worship time. I want to pray for uh, Wesley Methodist Church. Paul Gould is the pastor. I don't know that there's anything problem problematic going on there. We're just praying that the Lord is huge in that body and uh, that they are engaging him and that they're a suite of in the community. So let's pray. Lord, we want to turn this time over to you, and we want it to be... Uh, just so Christ-exalting that it is truly an encounter. And we want tomorrow to be different from today because we've laid our lives bare. I pray that in that, that we can tune out the distractions of maybe an unfamiliar setting or just the distractions that happen in life, and that we can just just be all there and available to the Word. Lord, I pray also for children right now. I just pray that you'll give them a special attentiveness and that you'll speak in spite of me to little hearts And you'll engage them with the truths of the word to where tomorrow will be different from today, even for little ones. Lord, we want to pray also about these needs, these current opportunities that we have in the body right now. And Lord, we pray that in your time and in your uh, design, that you will lead your people with passions into those positions. And we thank you so much for the opportunities. We thank you so much for those who are serving right now. And just pray that you'll keep them fueled and fed. And Lord, we want to pray for Paul Gould and Wesley Methodist Church. Lord, we want to pray that they are engaging you. I pray that uh, Paul and his family are healthy and that they're uh, clinging to Christ. I pray that they are arrested with the truths of the gospel. I pray that that manifests itself in his uh, preaching preparation and that he is just constantly rocked by the, the truths of the gospel. And I pray that that is a spillover on Sunday morning and just pours over a body of people to where they are, are captivated with Christ. Lord, I pray that as they're meeting right now, that, um, that you're keeping their environment distraction-free and that they're focused on you. We pray that we can truly be partners in ministry in a shared Lord, shared empty tomb, a shared commission in uh, Greenville and the surrounding areas. We love you so much, Lord. We are um, available this morning. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 11. Let me tell you right now, if you, if you don't have your Bible, or if you have a Bible that you're not real familiar with, there are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. You'll need that today. You really need it every time we gather, but you'll especially need that today. And I want you to see what we're going to engage today. This message that I'm about to share, I feel like, I just feel so humbled by these next series of messages because I feel like God has given Crosspoint Fellowship this big fat gold bar of truth, and I'm just amazed that he is lavishing this truth on us, and I'm excited about it, but you need to see it in the Word. You need to make sure... You need to sound out Ben McGraw and make sure Ben McGraw is not communicating this and see if this is coming from this book. I'll tell you why I'm prefacing the message with that, because you won't hear this in the world, what you're about to hear. You won't hear this message that you're about to hear from the world. And I will confess to you, at least in the Christian settings that I have been in in the past, I've never heard it. I've heard it communicated, if at all, apologetically. And today, we're going to put it out there. We're going to put it out there, and over the next few weeks, we're going to see what this does to us. But it's going to come from this book. Before we look in John 11, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. I don't want you to turn there, but you may make a note of this. Anytime you study the book of John, you should read this passage frequently, periodically. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John explains why he wrote the book. says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. This is a book of signs. That's what it's called. It's a series of signs that are presented for a purpose that John communicates, not all of them, but some of them. He says, There are many other signs which are not written in this book, but these signs, these signs that he's communicated that we've engaged the last few months are written for a purpose. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing with an I-N-G, you may have life in His name. So those signs are communicated for a purpose. Now, let me also tell you that there's no imagery wasted in John. I'm going to explain that more in a moment, but I want to go ahead and read from John chapter 11, beginning in verse 30. Remember, this sign is communicated so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. That's what we all want, right? I hope you want that. I want that for me and everybody that I know. I mean, that's what we're about. So let's, let's go to this, starting in verse 30 of John chapter 11. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, kids, we are still in the book of John chapter 11. Okay, be okay with that. You didn't, you've didn't. you missed some stuff, but yes, we're still there. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping... He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. King James Version, the language of the King James Version just makes you laugh sometimes. And in the original, or in the, not in the original language, King James Version, it says, surely he stinketh, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him. And let him go. No imagery is wasted in John. Every piece of this story points to the purpose of the book in fleshing out how we are to believe. What salvation looks like. From this book, it's a, it's a textbook on, salva- on how salvation works. And I want to share with you, before we really continue with where I'm going in John chapter 11. I want to share with you some little brief snapshots from the book of John that are also symbolic about salvation in large part, but specifically about our condition. That's what we're looking at. John chapter 5, don't turn there. It's just kind of a brief uh, summary. The pool of Bethesda, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He stops at the pool of Bethesda. Probably hundreds of people surrounding these porticos or pools of Bethesda. And he goes goes up to this one guy that's been lame for 38 years. He asks him if you want to be healed. The guy is too helpless and hopeless to even say, well, sure. He says, well, when the waters are stirred, there's nobody here to flop me over into the pool so I don't get healed. That's what they believed, There's an angel would stir the waters of the pool of Bethesda, and the first guy in the pool got healed. This guy was completely hopeless and helpless, and Jesus heals That man, he's a picture of our condition. 38 years, hopeless and helpless, laying lame by a pool of Bethesda with a pretty lame hope for deliverance. John chapter 8, he saves an adulterous woman. She is doomed before the law. The rocks of punishment are raised to stone her. She was caught in the act of adultery. And Christ delivers her. She's as good as dead before the law. And then in John chapter 9, he heals a man that's blind from birth. Over the course of the chapter, it begins the chapter with him heal- healing him physically, and then at the end of the chapter, he heals him spiritually. He, com- he finds the man again, and he asks him, Do you believe in the Lord, the Messiah? He says, Where is he? Let me add him. He says, Now you've seen him. And the guy says, I believe, and he falls prostrate and worships Christ. Pictures there of us being lame, hopeless and helpless for 38 years. Pictures of us being adulterous and doomed with the rocks raised for what we deserve. Pictures of us being blind from birth, unable to even see the Christ. Then in John chapter 11, he calls forth Lazarus. A man dead four days. The Jewish people believe that in the period up to four days, the first two or three days, that maybe the person could be revived. I don't know how that worked. Maybe that happened a couple times to lead them to believe that, or maybe it was just positive thinking. I don't know what it was. But when they said when somebody was dead four days, they are done. They're dead as a doornail. They may not have said that, but that's our version of what they thought. He's fully dead. Four days dead, meant he is dead. He calls forth Lazarus, a man dead four days, stinking, stinketh, and decomposing. Lazarus's stench and his deadness are a picture of our condition apart from Christ. Now, I realize... Some of y'all may be here for the first time or the first of a few times. You may have a little row of kids sitting next to you. And you might think this imagery is a little bit strong. You might feel like, man, I'm doing everything I can to develop a positive self-image in my children. I want them to, you know, cultivate self-esteem and hear this guy's up here saying that they were dead and decomposing. What I want to do is ask and attempt to answer from this book, do we really stink? And if we stink, do we really stink that bad? Okay, let's go. Actually, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 3, it's on page 940 of your pew Bible. Just go ahead and turn there. I'm going to share some passages of Scripture while you're turning there. These are passages of Scripture that I have visited and in some ways discovered and eaten through the book of John as we've visited with the adulterous woman or the, the man blind from birth or the man lame, hopeless and helpless for 38 years. These are just a few passages. Before we get to Romans, I'm going to share with you. You may jot them down if you'd like to. Isaiah chapter 60, 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are filthy, are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The best we have to offer is characterized as filthy rags. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is Desperately sick and deceitful above all else. The place where our motives come from and our actions come from is characterized as deceitful and sick. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David writes, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was sinful from the outset. Not only are we sinful now as we think and marry and pay bills and make decisions, but we were even conceived in sin. Before I look in Romans, I want to ask you the question, just to consider, I'm going to ask you this question as we develop these Romans passages. These are new passages for me to consider in this context. I want to ask you the question, is it starting to get smelly yet? I mean, really, I, I'm, I'm not joking about that. Are you starting to smell yourself yet? Are you starting to recollect the stench of your tomb? Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become Useless. Do you hear those words? Useless. Is that strong? We'll find out in a little bit. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's pretty strong. Just a few verses down, a passage that I learned when I was a kid. My dad used to give me packs of M&Ms when I learned a passage of Scripture. So I was was pretty fat, and I knew a lot of Scripture. (laughs) And this is one of the first one of them. Romans chapter three, twenty three. For all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. Are you smelling it yet? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. For the mind is set on the flesh, excuse me, for the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Are you smelling the stench? Are you feeling the hopeless and desperate situation of our dark, cold tomb? In this passage, it tells us that the natural carnal mind is actually an enemy of God. Somebody that I'm going to introduce you to here in the next couple of weeks, you'll hear from him just briefly right now, is a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. He's a Puritan writer. He wrote a book on the rare, it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he provides these series of observations of those that are truly content. And one of those was the realization, listen to this, I am nothing. That's pretty strong. And I'm like, man, golly, that's strong. But then you keep on reading and you go. His next observation was, in fact, I'm worse than nothing. Because nothing might point to an empty vessel, like neutral are void. And in fact, we're not empty vessels, he says. We're vessels filled with poison. He says we are enemies of God. Are you smelling that yet? Let's go to Genesis. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 6. It's on page 5 of your pew Bible. Or if you have the ESV, I failed to mention that. English Standard Version. Genesis chapter 6. I want to tell you that we have these little cards on the table that you need to grab one of these cards. It's a little read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year card. It's like a coach that sits down and tells you what to read each day. It's the best-kept secret that shouldn't be a secret. Get one of those things. I, I, I'll confess to you that you know, my reading through the Bible has not really been a whole lot, of, real intentional in terms of covering the whole Bible. But I started doing that about two months ago, and I began in January. So I was reading this passage about the time that I'm studying for this sermon, and I was arrested with what I'm about to show you. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Everybody knows the story of Noah. You know, I was tempted to just read right on through it. Oh, okay, I got that. Let me go to something I hadn't read before. But I read it anyway, and I'm glad I did, because look, Chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Man. You know, when I read that as a kid, when I, even when I read that a couple months ago, I'm reading that going, boy, humanity must have been pretty messed up, boy. Send a flood, wipe them all out. God, they must have been like worldwide Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. Good thing we're not like that now. <laughs> but then I turned over a couple chapters. Actually, I read through and I got to this place in chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. All right, the water has subsided. Everybody's dead except for Noah and his family. And two by two, they may have multiplied. They may have eaten some of them too on the ark. Okay? They drop the gangplank or whatever they would have called it. The animals file off. The family, you know, Noah and his family, Shem and all those guys. I guess Shem, uh, yeah, one of the, I can't remember the other guy's name. They, they climb off, you know, and, and here's what Noah does. Noah built an altar to the Lord. It's in verse 20 and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, because man has learned his lesson. That sorry bunch. It doesn't say that. Look what it says. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every every living thing as I have done. I was arrested with that. I was like, man, those guys that I've been able to dismiss my whole life as being so wicked that he would send a flood to destroy them, I realize I'm in league with those guys. It's only by his divine grace that I wasn't swimming for a few minutes in a flood. Now, once wicked, we're still wicked. Just in case you think that's an Old Testament image, just in case you think we're pushing that a little bit too far, turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, page 976 of your pew Bible or your ESV. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10 are my favorite passages of Scripture because they contain the whole gospel. I mean, it's all good, but I'd really like to see containment. I like to see things that I can get my head around. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, kind of present our condition, and they present these two words in verse 4, they're my favorite words in the whole Bible, but God (laughs) quickens us. He finds us in our condition. Christ does the work, and then as a result of that, We become walking billboards. We become his workmanship, his craftsmanship, masterpieces of glory, walking around, doing good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. It's a cool passage of Scripture. But the passage of Scripture begins, chapter 2 and verse 1. Listen to this. And you, now listen, he's speaking to Ephesians, Ephesian believers, before Christ, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Good. Googly moogly. If you thought you didn't stink before now, surrender to that and take a whiff of that. And smell your stench before Christ being dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's personalize it. Let's bring Lazarus into it. Come on, Lazarus. And you were with Lazarus in your trespasses and sins. And you were laying cold, dead, decomposing in your trespasses and sins before Christ called you out of a tomb. Smell that stench. How do we get to these aggressive assessments of man's condition? It's a good question. Here's how we get to these aggressive assessments of man's condition. Because man is not the judge nor the standard. There's the potential. As you hear these passages, you're going, Man, my wife is not that bad. She's really not. My kids, they're not that bad. I wouldn't call them wicked. I mean, at times they might be close, you know, but... Uh, just kidding, kids. Wouldn't call them wicked. Your neighbors, your friends, your workmates, even those that don't know Christ. There's some nice people that don't know Christ. How can we get there? The only way we can get there is because man is not the judge nor the standard. God is the judge and His holiness is the standard. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, says, you are, Jesus says, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa, that's the standard? Okay, I guess we are pretty wicked. We know so little about holiness and perfection that we judge what's right and who's good by what we think is right and good. All the while, not recognizing it's like measuring a wall with a twisted, broken ruler. If what we think of someone is the measurement of whether someone is good, Realize the measurement instrument isn't good in the first place. Our Bibles are the perfect ruler. Our Bibles are timeless truth from God that says, here's the standard, perfection, holiness. And they say, this Bible, mine says, and I bet yours says, that we're filthy, deceitful, desperately sick, brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. We fall short of God's glory and are actually enemies of God. Our Bibles say we're wicked and evil, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're laying, stinking, and decomposing right next to Lazarus. That's what our Bibles say. Whatever the contemporary church is not saying, that's what our Bibles say. Now, you think I've been really excited about sharing that? (laughs) If I was left with that, Without us connecting the pieces, man, I'd be like, whoo, it's hard to grow a church on that. <laughs> My church, plant, church planter instructors would say, you would never preach a message like that. That's like a Wednesday night Bible study. You don't preach that to the people. You can't grow a church that way. I would argue you grow a church that way. You may not grow a crowd that way. But you'll grow a church, a sweet aroma church that engages these truths. What I want to do this morning is share two observations of the formerly smelly. Two observations of the formerly smelly. And what I'm going to do in the next two, maybe three, maybe four weeks is share some more. All right? And I promise you, what what I promise you is that these observations, when you piece this together, when you surrender to your funk, your stench, when you surrender to really how putrid we are, that there's riches in there. It's going to rock your world. I promise you. Okay, here's where we're going this morning. The first two observations on the formerly smelly. Here's the first. The formerly smelly are students of just how bad their tomb stunk. The formerly smelly are students of just how bad their tomb stunk. Turn to Job chapter 1. It's on page 417 of your Pew Bible. <clears throat> Job chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Okay, we met our main character the book of Job. This man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Let's consider if Job is a student of his stench. Turn to the last, or toward the end of the book, chapter 42. It's the last chapter. If you want to just read something that rock your world, read the chapters before, 42. It will put in perspective the distance between you and God. It will put in perspective how we should tremble before the living God. Job, over the course of the book, asked a series of questions. How can you do this to me? It, good questions. and I, It says in the beginning, in all this he did not sin. They were good questions. And God answered him in the chapters before this. And here's Job's response to God's answer in, in chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said... I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Listen, I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear. Listen. But now my eye sees you. This is what he does. What he says next. Now my, I heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, is what the New American Standard Version, which is weak. I don't know why they did that. Because the word is despise myself. It, it, he says, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I've seen you. Now I've heard of you before, but I've seen you. And now I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Turn to the book of Ezekiel, page 708 of your pew Bible. I told you you you're going to need your Bibles this morning. Ezekiel chapter 20 is where we're turning specifically. Radical teaching should have a source, hopefully other than the person. And I am hopefully demonstrating to you this morning that this is not Ben's idea. I'm just reading it. Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 41. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel and communicating them about how he's going to bring them back in and how he's going to operate. And He says in verse 41, as a soothing aroma, it really how he's going to rescue them. Just like those images we saw in John where Jesus rescues people. Kind of climb into that context. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you. Now listen, let me stop you right here. I know that, it, that you know, we kind of had like a full message morning already. It's just getting to the good stuff. So I, I'm challenging you. Pray right now that Lord will put your physical body aside and your tendency to, to live out in 30-minute sitcoms and engage this for amount of time that it'll take to unpack these truths that I promise you will change your life. Listen to this. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered and I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations and you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to deliver you guys. I'm going to bring you back. And then in verse 43, there... Once delivered, you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourself and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. Those who are truly delivered see their wretchedness. Those truly delivered recognize our condition and they almost embrace it. Because it's in that backdrop that you see just how low grace had to go. Turn over to chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the most telling passage for me. About this truth that the formerly smelly are students of just how bad their tomb stunk. Listen. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How many times have you heard that passage? That's rich. That's fat. Now, read it in context. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, you will live in the land that I will give to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for your grain and multiply it, and I will, bring, I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. In so many words, he's saying, I'm going to bless you. And then in verse 31, he says, Then, because of your new heart, you now have a new heart of flesh. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. A byproduct of a flesh heart, folks, if you think you're a believer, let this diagnose you. A byproduct of a truly flesh heart is recognition of your condition. A remembrance of the deeds that you did that were not, done, were not good. Recognition of your evil ways. A remembrance and a loathing of yourself. Wow. That's not just at the beginning of deliverance either. It's not just at the first day with a new heart, but every time you see him, like Job did, every time you see him, the response, the only appropriate response is to despise yourself and to repent in dust and ashes. If you don't think you stink and you've never despised yourself, then you haven't seen Him. I'm going to say it again. If you've never despised yourself, if you don't think you ever stunk, you have never seen Him. If you haven't remembered in a long time how much you stink or stunk, then you haven't seen Him in a while. The only appropriate response is to despise yourself. Isaiah saw him and said this. He said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Those who truly know him are students of just how bad their tomb stunk. And this is the second one, much shorter. The formerly smelly Know the singular reason they don't stink now. Those who know him know the singular reason they don't stink now. John chapter eleven, John shares that this is a message, uh, a book on salvation. In John chapter eleven, he paints the picture of Christ being called to Bethany to save some or to deliver someone that he loves. He calls Lazarus forth, dead four days dead from the tomb. And then in verse 47, there's the word therefore. Therefore, you could almost insert, as a result of what's happened before, this happens. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's pictured right here in this passage of what that singular reason is. That onlyness, the only possibility, the only voice that could have called Lazarus out is the only voice that can call us out of our condition. And it's the voice of Christ, but it came at a cost. The result of his raising Lazarus was his own death. Lazarus' resurrection and our resurrection came because of his crucifixion. That's the only thing that gives life. We were purchased from that tomb and that stench. And a ransom was paid for our deliverance from that cold, dark deadness. Closing thought. Without an appreciation of your stench and deadness, you have no appreciation for the debt that was owed for your sin. Without an appreciation of your condition, you will never appreciate the terrible price paid to liberate us from that tomb. The mirror of our true condition must be this book. This must be our standard for understanding ourselves. If we use our own impressions or those of friends and family around us, we're measuring with a crooked broken ruler. Parents, young people, adults, parents especially, I'm speaking from the point of view of a parent. I mentioned the beginning of the message about self-image and self-esteem. I'm learning more from this book that that's not my job to develop self-image and self-esteem in my children. My job is to develop God-image and Christ-esteem. My job is to hold the mirror of the book up to my kids and say, that's what you look like, guys. And your value comes from nothing in you. It comes just from the divine sovereignty of a sweet Lord that's reaching down low to save you. That's where it comes from. That's our job. Finding yourself should not creep into the church. The church's pursuit should be losing yourself, forgetting yourself in the riches of Christ. Let me pray. Lord, I want to pray that this seed that has hit hearts is sounded out, that finds purchase. I pray that it is watered with study and prayer. I pray that this seed from the word about our condition is something that arrests us, that we can smell the stench of our tomb, and in that, that you will transform us to be surprised by grace that called us forth from that tomb. Or teach us to be a people of surprise, teach us to be a people that remember the stench of our tomb, and teach us to be a people that see a singularness and an in terms of remedy in the person of your Son or whatever that means, if that means trimming our church to a smaller people that recognize their condition, then do it. Lord, we're not about growing big. We're about growing faithful. Lord, show us our condition, whatever the cost, in that humble us, in that make us available instruments for your glory. Show us also, Lord, in this these next few days that we'll spend with our children, how to explain this to them, how to engage them with these truths, the things that they've heard this morning. Lord, I beg for questions from them, and I pray for parents that want to dig and want to answer and want to explore the riches of the Word. I pray that families will approach the mirror and that a result of that is that you'll have people that are truly aromatic, that are truly salt and truly light. Lord, we love you with everything in us. Thank you so much for calling us out of our tombs. We pray that we will never forget what we've been saved from. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.